Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I try to delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it actually takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now, my next guest is the record-breaking sportswoman, adventurer, and author, Jessica Watson. Jessica spent 210 days, 210 days, alone at sea, where she became the youngest person to ever sail solo, nonstop, around the world. And if that wasn't enough, she did it at the age of 16. Now, from memory at 16, I was mainly just trying to grow out a bad 80s perm. So the fact that anyone would take this on at 16 just blows my mind to begin with. However, it's not the fact that she took it on that I find intriguing. And it's also not so much the journey itself, because to be honest, you can find a lot of information about the journey, including video diaries, online, read Wikipedia. What I find intriguing about Jess is what happened before the journey. Because you've got to remember, the journey took place at the age of 16. Now, there was a number of years of planning for this journey, getting people on board this journey, having the journey look like it was never going to happen, having the media commenting on this journey, having her family highly criticized for allowing a 16-year-old to undertake this journey, and then holding herself firm and trying to lead at an age where most of us are really trying to get up the courage to just speak in public for the first time. I first met Jess a few years ago in a coffee shop. We had been introduced by a mutual friend and we were just catching up as to where she was and what she was planning on doing now. She'd done some incredible things since returning successfully. She was about to author a new book. We had a lovely conversation and then we went our separate ways. Fast forward a few years later and I bought a new bedtime story for my daughter called Bedtime Stories for Rebellious Girls. And she just, she loves it. She loves it. And every night we dive into a different story. And I'm flicking through this book. And then all of a sudden there's Jess's story and there's a picture of her flaming blonde hair. And, and my daughter just looks, just, just looks at it with these huge wide eyes and big girl, big girl. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in touch with her again because I think that there's a story here outside of the story of her time on sea that is well worth telling. So that's how it came about. What we delved into was a world of influence, a world of hugely impressive influence, including how to lead people older or much more experienced than you. And I hear that question come up a lot. You know, I'm the leader of a team. They're all older than me. Um, I'm leading a team. They're way more experienced than me. This 14, 15-year-old girl managed to attract and lead and keep a team of the saltiest sea dogs, the most experienced sailors on the planet who flew from every corner of the globe to help her with her journey, gave up their time for free and believed in her enough to publicly back her. And in one case, buy her a boat, literally buy her a boat. How do you identify and cut destructive mental loops before they take hold? How do you deal with critics without losing focus? How do you build a vision and hold your ground when the seas get rough? And they did, they did get rough for her before she even set sail. And how to hold on through knockdowns, sometimes when your boat literally <laughs> overturning on your head, and just trust that your crew did their work. Now, we all have times we need to make big leaps. For some of us, okay, very few of us, those times come at 16. For most of us, those times sneak up on us a little bit and they ask us to start a journey or begin a conversation that just seems too huge to tackle or to influence people that feel unreachable or hold our ground when the critics invariably arrive. For those of you who can feel one of those times coming or you know somebody in the middle of one of them right now, I know you are going to love my conversation with the indestructible, mind-blowingly amazing Jessica Watson. Jessica Watson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to kick off this interview the same way I kick off all interviews, which is do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert? And the reason I ask that is 
is because especially anyone that knows your journey yeah you do have to have been under a rock <laughs> if you don't know your journey would assume that to pull that kind of magnitude together you'd have to almost be an extrovert well yes that's interesting because it's true that the amount of people it took and the time with these people beforehand but also as a solo sailor probably comes as no surprise that i am more of an introvert i really love people but i definitely need that time to recharge by myself which is good because you had approximately 230 yes. days to recharge <laughs> yes. by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I suppose that was exactly how I got through those 210 days is that I didn't mind that time by myself. I do. I really do love people. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I didn't mind at all that time by myself. One of the things I was really interested about when I first started researching, especially the background story to your journey, was that you started off being afraid of, I think you said you had said water, but not only water, sand and water. <laughs> yes, that was me as a kid. I didn't like to get sandy. Yeah, I was really timid as a kid, not very confident and really not a good sailor. So, you know, certainly not naturally talented, but just found it really quite daunting. Um, don't like getting cold either. So, you know, falling in the water, even though this, I actually grew up in Queensland. So, you know, this wasn't cold water. I thought it was and still tend to think it is. And yeah, just found the whole thing a bit much, you know, because I suppose it was quite out of control for me. Too such, a, such a natural leap from being afraid of sand, water and cold <laughs> to, to sailing a boat around the oceans, around the world. Yes. Yeah, obviously that is completely odd and, and people are shocked. They they do think it's my older sister who went on to do what I did because, well, they assume that they had the two of us confused because she was the confident, outgoing, bold one who probably should have gone on to do something like this. But it was it was the curiosity of it. You know, could I do that? Would I want to do it? That first kind of fascinated me. And uh, I had to sort of, it was because I wanted to sail around the world that I chose to overcome my fear. So kind of did that in the wrong order a little bit there. Well, that that started, you know, you and I have met before and I bought a book for my daughter called Bedtime Stories for Rebel Girls. And she is just, she's obsessed with it and she reads it every night. And I'm flicking through this book and all of a sudden I see you, a whole page dedicated to you and your journey. And that was where I suddenly thought, okay, I'm going to interview. I'm going to interview you if for no other reason than for, for her sometime in the future. <laughs> yes. But also because knowing your journey, it had been a while since we met, I had forgotten what an influential journey you had had. But your story also started with a bedtime story. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really dyslexic. So mum would read to me all the time really to help me through that and, and sort of try and build up my confidence. And turns out she probably did too good a job of that you know, dangerous ideas that books can give you. And one of these was particularly um, damaging, I suppose, because this story I could relate to the, the hero, Jesse Martin, who was this 18-year-old who sailed around the world. And his story just struck me that it was so relatable. So it just made, gave me that connection between these people in these books and myself and, and just I could see myself in these stories and what could I do? Would I want to do something like that was sort of what I was thinking. And Jesse Martin, he, that's a true story. He's, yes. He sailed around the world solo at 17. You did it at 16. He did it at 18. 17. 18. Yes. Yeah, Sorry. 18. Uh, yes. Yeah, real story. Uh, and he has been incredibly supportive over the years and since sort of become friends with him, which is just lovely when you kind of meet your own childhood heroes and discover that they're just as great in person. <laughs> that's quite in-depth reasoning for an eight-year-old <laughs> to, was, to suddenly was, read something and think, do you know what? Most people, I guess what I'm trying to say, most people grow out of that as in when you think, yeah. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the moon because you read it in a book and then, you know, eventually you suddenly think, actually, I might become yeah. something else, something a little bit more grounded. But you didn't. You made up your mind at eight. It was, it was more 11 from 11, that, that story, and, and I really started thinking quite seriously about it for a year before I started telling people what was going to happen, telling them rather than asking, you know, my parents. Um, but that was, that was my mindset. And, yeah, it is, it is a really interesting question. And, you know, actually I've had a lot of kids ask me that recently. So how do you stay focused or stay passionate about something and probably just as relevant for adults? And it is interesting. I mean, obviously, I just became more and more fascinated as I started researching and finding out more about it. And I think something that I've realized is that 
you develop passion. It's not something that strikes you with a lightning bolt. It was something that I became more and more obsessed with as I started the journey of, of training and preparation. So it built and built um, because I was doing it. So, you know, action, I suppose, actually inspires passion for something as much as anything else. That's very true. It's very rarely a light bulb moment where suddenly, you know, the clouds part and there's this ah, <laughs> moment where suddenly it all becomes yeah. clear and you're absolutely committed to a cause. It is more the things you put into action you become passionate about. Yes. Because you're in motion and you're getting better and better yeah. at them, you're learning more and more and you feel better and better about it. Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, I was ticking off all the things that sort of, would this be possible? And I was sort of going, yes, 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 you know, finding out and learning about these things. And I did sort of get to a point where I was utterly obsessed. And I do look back on that now and realize how lucky I was to have just this all-consuming passion and goal. Um, it's a really awesome thing, really hard on the people around you and yourself at the time, of course, but it's awesome to have that level of um, focus. As a parent, it's hard to imagine. It's like, but it is. It's, there's yes. that line, yeah. you know, there's that line between do whatever you want, follow mm. your dreams, nothing is out of your reach to apart from that. Yeah. You know, that thing, that thing where you sail around the world yes. by yourself at 16, yeah, that, let's just maybe discourage that. And so yeah. there's always that temptation to say do anything apart from these things, these things that, that scare me. Well, look, that's exactly it. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly no expert in parenting and cannot give that sort None of advice. None of us are. None of us are. But yeah, well, okay. The, um, that's what I saw my parents go through is that they had this lovely idea that they would tell their kids that they could do anything, you know, really put these ideas in our heads. And then I took it a bit further than they probably imagined. And did they try and talk you out of it? Yeah. Mum, not so much. There was definitely some suggestions of some smaller islands just off the coast that might be better to sail around. Dad... It, Certainly. His issue was, though, that he didn't take me seriously to start with when I first told him, as you wouldn't because, oh, yeah, next week you want to go to the moon. Sure, great. Uh, you know, you'll, maybe you'll get interested in boys in a few years and that'll distract you. And he, in fact, decided he might even try and introduce me to boys when he realised, I'm kidding, of course, but, um, you know, when he realised how serious this voyage was getting. No, let me think. Hang on. Like, yeah. Dating a biker. <laughs> Or a solo expedition. Yeah, mm. bikers looking good. Mm, yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that's that's for him it was really hard. He really, really struggled with it and I, I absolutely know that it was pretty cruel what I put him through and I suppose the issue was that he did get to the point where he realised he just couldn't crush it because it would have utterly destroyed me. I was living and breathing it and, you know, that that was me. That was my whole identity was this this voyage I was planning so he couldn't stop that, which is pretty mean, that situation that I put him in. <laughs> The thing that I thought of during that period of time, I started wondering, when was the first time, do you remember the first time you said it out loud? Yes. Yep. Yeah, definitely. That was very nerve wracking. Um, told my sister, we were actually living on a boat with the family at the, the time. I remember beautiful starry sky. We were lying in our cabin looking out at this amazing starry sky in North Queensland. And yeah, I plucked up the carriage. You know, it started out as one of these just conversations amongst two sisters and it was nerve wracking to just tell her that. And it then was her a few weeks later, uh, months actually, who we forced me to tell mum and dad uh, we were having this family discussion and she sort of said, Jessica's got something to tell you. And I told them tears and all. Like it was, I don't know why in hindsight, but it's just because this, I was so serious about it probably felt so precious it did yeah it was it was and it is scary to tell people uh, it was scary for a couple of years because people you know do think you're a little bit crazy it's a big thing but also just because it meant so much to me it was real it wasn't just a yeah mm, there's layers to that though isn't there there's the the worry that somebody that you're handing somebody this precious thing that you've mm. been building building and that they might crush it mm. and there's the other worry that once you've said it out loud oh my god like yeah yeah a level you are now committed to this. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, that I think it wasn't so much that element that I was scared of. I was ready to jump in. Um, but yeah, it did set things in motion and, uh, you know, I gained confidence saying practice. And um, yeah, there's, there's no doubt, I suppose, also when you put yourself in a position, and I'm quite conscious of this these days, that I like putting myself in positions where you then need to live up to something. Um, what better, in fact, even during the voyage, people say, well, did you ever want to give up at any point? I was in the middle of oceans. There's no easy out. So you're in a position where you, the easiest thing to do is to keep going, no matter how hard that is. 
So put yourself in those positions, you know. <laughs> it's funny. I was talking to a business person the other day and they said that they had, I thought it was just a beautiful way of phrasing it. They said, I've had to develop a really unique relationship with fear. Mm. So I've had to shift my relationship with fear from a relationship where I run in the other direction mm. to where I feel fear and I, and I have to run towards it because, as you said, it is the easiest. Yeah. The easiest way is through. It's the most frightening but it's the easiest way. The hardest in reality is when you run away and it chases you and you keep running and keep running and keep running mm. and eventually, usually you have to face it anyway. It is. And and actually something that I think is really undervalued is being proactive. You know, people talk about all these other wonderful values and things that we can do to improve our life, but just being proactive, you know, bite the bullet, get it done, say the hard thing. It's actually going to make your life easier and better. And I, I suppose I've never really thought about that, but maybe that's what the voyage did for me. <laughs> it wasn't easy, but it was, you know, it was running towards the scariest thing, but it's certainly been, been very good to me. Well, after that, I, I I cannot imagine what would come next. So let's just pick up on that point, the being proactive point, because the most fascinating part of your journey for me is what you had to do to build a crew. Mm. Now, it's really easy to underestimate this and to focus on the journey itself and what it looked like and day after day on the ocean. But for me, the most interesting bit from an influence point of view mm. is what everything that happened before. So you had to pull together, a, I think you said at one point, an, ar an army of salty sea dogs. Yes. <laughs> like literally some of the hardest adventurers, most hardened adventurers on the planet and bring them onto your crew. And from what I heard, you tell me if it's right, it actually started, you put an ad in the paper? Yeah, Boating Magazine it was. Um, what yeah. did it say? Asking for help. I thought it was a pretty terrible idea. It wasn't my suggestion in the early days. This this was a point where it had already been many years of training and I was building up this team kind of naturally, people who were kept willing to sort of pick up the phone when I was asking them for advice and many of that grew into, you know, much bigger support. In fact, one of those initial conversations with, you know, an amazing adventurer himself ended in him buying me a boat to use for the voyage. So these things were happening. You know, it was it was amazing. I do look back on that and realise how incredible So that it was, was Don McIntyre, wasn't yes. it? And yeah. he sailed around the world himself in 1990, yes. I think. Yeah. And so as a result of a phone conversation with you, he an bought email you to start with, an email. <laughs> he bought you a boat. He yes. bought you and fitted out a boat. And so just to give some context to that, that's a little bit like in the world of, let's just say, interviewing. Mm. It's a little bit like Oprah buying me a recording studio as a result of one email how there were a few steps in between how are you telling the story because yeah. there's got to be something in how you were telling the story i'm not sure that it was necessary a wonderful job of telling the story although there was definitely you know that the passion for it i did learn very quickly that i need to say i am doing this not I would like, you know, in the early, early days, I was saying things like, I would like to, if I get the support, um, it was very much about this is happening. Would you like to support it? Or I would like your advice. So that was, that was pretty clear. I remember being taught that. And again, that was hard. That took courage. Uh, and then really it was the persistence of the communication. These people were lovely, but you know, I went, they would follow up. I would do everything they say. And then I would come back. I say, all right, I've done, I've read that book. I've done that course. What should I do now? You know, what's your next piece of advice? So it was that consistency and, I, and they realised that I was serious because I kept doing what they said and coming back. I think that's such a, a massively important piece of advice for anybody who's mm. looking for mentors because if someone gives your, you their attention in the first place, mm. somebody that's potentially very busy and they give you the benefit of just a couple of things to do, if you come back and say that you've done those things, that's usually quite impressive to somebody that's busy as opposed to consistently asking questions and no follow through. There is yes. something about someone who's prepared to do the work that will inspire some incredible mentors. Mm, and that's exactly what I was seeing. And yeah, and then it led to the point where we needed more help again to physically get the boat ready. And this ad was put in the paper and it was just amazing that there were people who came from around the country and further afield, in fact, to help you know they were paying for their own flights mum was cooking them dinner at the end of most days mum's cooking's good but it's not you know that it's not it's not you know fly across the country and work sun up sundown for weeks on end you know I did start to become quite amazed at what these people were doing and and what it weighed on me well how am I going to thank them enough for what they're doing for me was what I was thinking I realized when one of the guys sat me down at the time and said hey actually it's not about 
that. It's not about how you're going to reward us for what you've done. Uh, it's actually about wanting to be part of this. This is our dream. Uh, you know, we're all buying into this sort of wanting to challenge the status quo to stop and make people think about what young people are capable of. That's that's why they were all there. And it was as much theirs as it was mine by the end of it. I, I do say we a lot when I'm talking about this voyage and I'm talking about myself and my little boat because we were very close like that. That's just the way it was. But I am also saying we because I mean these people and, you know, the family and the team. It, it really was how it felt the entire time even while I was you know the most alone person the most physically remote person on earth I honestly never used the word lonely missed everyone needed a hug badly at times but not lonely I think you you said at the time um it became their voyage Mm. again bringing it back to leadership and bringing Mm. it back to influence that they weren't doing it for reward it's a bit like it reminded me I don't know if you would know this so you know the story of Shackleton Yes. When he puts the ad, put the ad out saying yep. adventurers wanted chances of returning alive minimal mm. and hundreds of people applied. You know, it's not the reward that, that mattered. It was the fact that they got to be part of an epic journey. Yeah. It's shared ownership, you know, um, shared vision. And it is all that stuff starting with a why and that shared why. Uh, and it did. It, it became theirs. And, and I was willing to share it with them. I was willing to – I realised also I was, I was constantly seeking their input and one of the things that actually was incredibly strong about this, you know, sort of mixed team of people who looked probably so unprofessional and, and you know, such a mix of skills and talents was that fact is that the debates that we had as we were preparing this boat, often arguments, I've got to be honest, you know, that was really tough at the time to work through that. I felt so, you know, pulled in 10 different directions because I was getting all these conflicting pieces of advice. But ultimately, we made the right decisions because there was such a robust debates about every little detail. And there were all these different opinions and such varied experience. And I can't imagine any one of that team ever wanting to put you on a boat that they thought was anything less than bulletproof. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. There's that as well. Yeah. But, you know, they did have different ideas about what bulletproof was, which was not always easy. So tell me, what did you learn? So again, it's important to remember you're somewhere between 14 and 16. Yeah. And you're leading a team of hardened adventurers, I'm guessing probably in their 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of older, a lot of them. <laughs> oh, okay. So what did you, because that's in the deep end. Yeah. Like what did you learn about leading a team of people that are more experienced than you, I'm guessing louder than mm. you, and probably not short of opinions? Yeah. Um. I mean, I suppose the first, the, the really big takeaway there is the fact that it's not about being any sort of wonderful leader. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> you know, my, my lists of um, things that had to be done every day were written, but not necessarily um, much attention was paid to them always. Uh, so I, I learned the big takeaway there is that you don't, it's not about being a certain type of leader or having some wonderful skills. It's about that shared vision. That's, you know, for foremost why they were there, what made it work. I mean, just having the courage to know that my opinion also mattered. Obviously, in that situation, it was me out there. So I really wanted everyone's advice, but I knew also that I needed to make the final decision and had somebody who was telling me that too, which did help. I've seen the same thing and felt in, I felt that position actually a lot more when I did a Youth Sydney Hobart project. I was the skipper, I pulled this project together. We took the project pretty seriously and we wanted to be competitive, not just the youth entry token youth entry and I was yeah the youngest as the 18 year old skipper and also the least experienced when it came to this type of racing which sounds silly because I just sailed around the world but I really was the least experienced on that boat and I stepped on the first day of training and thought that I needed to set the example in every way by yelling at my crew you know while doing an amazing job of steering the boat and you know just be the best all around that just didn't work at all I finished the day in tears badly uh I couldn't yell to my crew at the front of the boat because my voice wouldn't even go that far so I couldn't be the best person on board and I had to go back to those lessons I had learned with the help of a fantastic coach I should say and realize that it wasn't about that for me as a leader it was actually about getting the best out of these crew members and enabling their talents to shine that's what I could do and the out shouting you can only take out shouting to a certain place 
Mm. Eventually your voice will give out. It just didn't work. You know, they tried to give me like voice training to try and like yell over the wind. It just didn't work. So I had to delegate that to someone, (laughs) one of the guys with a bigger voice and that was fine. You mentioned a coach. Mm. What was the, what was the best piece of advice your coach gave you during that period of time? Oh, wow. There honestly is so much. I mean, at the start of that program, they taught me to not be late all the time. (laughs) So yeah, there was, oh, it is so hard to pick just one gem. But really, I think it was, it was all about letting me see that it wasn't about setting some sort of shining example. It was about enabling these different talents to shine. Um, we'd deliberately chosen probably them more so than me because I hadn't realised the strength of this at the time. They had deliberately chosen with me a diverse team, a really, really different team of personalities and talents. It clashed like anything at times, as you can imagine, a bunch of teenagers. But that was really magic when it worked. So that was the, the big lesson, I think, from that project. And how do you hold your ground? You mentioned there that you have the final say. <laughs> and you do have the final say because literally, mm. without exaggerating, your life is on the line here. Mm. Your, your life's going to be on the line, on that boat. You're the one that's going to have to live with the consequences of all of these decisions. Mm. So how do you take all those opinions and make a final call, hold your ground enough to make mm. a final call? It's definitely about showing that, you know, you do respect the different opinions and you understand where they're coming from. And, and it's not until you have those that you can actually make that informed decision, I suppose. It was a matter of, yeah, I suppose just straight out standing my ground and, and explaining why. And there were definitely people, in fact, the person who actually really helped me to stand my ground was also somebody who I had the biggest disagreement with over a certain piece of equipment. And he he did respect that as much as he really shared this different opinion. So really that was what taught me that is I could see this this person doing this for me even though they totally disagreed. So you got to see that you can mm. have a disagreement yes. and still move through it and move on with mutual respect. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah, it, he respected me for my opinion, yeah. So there's two different types of crew that you had to build. Mm. The, the first is the crew pulling all of this together, you know, getting the boat, getting all of the provisions, the equipment, everything that you need for this voyage. The second part of your crew is a little bit more commercial Mm. and that's getting the sponsors. Yes. Getting sponsors on board because it couldn't happen without the sponsors. Yeah. And again, when I was looking into your journey a little bit more deeply, I thought it was very telling that you said, you know, you were making those phone calls and one of the first sponsorships you got with some chocolate bars. Mm. <laughs> and you just imagine that moment where you're kind of like, that's not going to help, but thank you. That's going to keep me going for a, a few minutes. What did you learn about turning an idea into money, into support, yeah. into financial bottom line support? I suppose the, one of the biggest things I realized now that was absolutely key was momentum. So once I had that uh, chocolate sponsor and a few other little gear sponsors who in fact were actually saying, we will give you uh, this when you've got a boat. So there was a lot, uh, you know, people saying there's this sort of, I can see where they're coming from. I think it was fantastic. But that was enough for me to still say, I have all these sponsors. And then that made me look a little bit more serious when I was calling up the slightly bigger ones again. And I did end up with some good help and good advice negotiating those larger sort of financial contracts which was a very good thing because you know I was pretty out of my depth with a few aunties and uncles who were giving me some advice at this point but it was there's no doubt it was it was very much about and the way I was talking about the conviction you know I was in these boardroom meetings that I do look back on go wow like that's amazing but they could see I could answer every single question about what could go wrong they could see that I was just so utterly determined they could see that it was happening whether or not they were the people to support it Um, you know they could see that this was their chance to be involved or miss out I mean I have so much respect for those people who did support me too because gosh it was a must have been a daunting call for them to make oh, as well. It's a huge ask. Yeah. It's a huge ask. I mean, you're you're potentially mm. asking them to sponsor an international incident. Yeah. Which would not have gone unnoticed by the teams of lawyers that they no doubt had behind them. Mm. But it's really interesting that you say that because I was talking to the founder of Thank You Water recently. Yes. And he said exactly the same thing about how he started Thank You Water. He said, I just had to get a series of small yeses. Mm. So I had to go to a bottling company and say, if we can get a stockist, will you bottle? If I can get a yes from this person, will you say yes? And the more small yeses they got, yeah, they somehow worked their way up to the really large yeses that make a big difference. That's absolutely it. The persistence and the momentum and... um 
yeah, you know, plenty of other things that you learn along the way, but those were certainly the key things. And there's no doubt that I, I had to know what I was on about and had to show them that how thoroughly things were being done. Otherwise, they wouldn't have wouldn't have been on board. No. How did you deal with the no's? Because they're just <laughs> inevitable. Part of the game is you're going to get knocked back. You're going to get knocked on your bum a thousand times before, mm. before it comes off. So how did you deal with that? Did you go, did you go home at any point and go, actually, I'm done. I'm just, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to find a boyfriend <laughs> and buy a pony or whatever it is yeah. that a 15 year old girl is supposed to do. And I'm going to stick with that because this is just way, way too hard. I didn't. No, I never had that moment where I thought that. I've definitely had moments, well, I did have moments where I was thinking it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. But somehow or another, this was going to happen. It was just, I was so single-minded about it, which as I was saying, it's just, it is such a a special thing. (laughs) It's an awesome feeling. Um, To be that unshakable. Yeah, exactly. And and I suppose really that's how um, I did get some of this support as well, is, is that just attitude that somehow dragged other people along with it so you've dragged all these people you've mm. dragged all these people on on this crazy mission journey and you've got your crew and you're just about you're just about to go and you take it out I think you yes. take it out for your first night yeah it was your first night you pick up the story from here what happened on the first ever night you took your boat out you know, it's so funny, this little incident. Everyone thinks it's the thing I don't want to talk about. This is the thing I love talking about. Uh, hitting the ship is just, yeah, it, obviously the worst thing that could have happened. It was so embarrassing my first night out to sea colliding with a 63,000-ton container ship. Okay, just a stop. So you're on a little boat. Yep. I've seen the video footage, so I just think it's it's important for people that are listening mm. to have some kind of visual of what we're talking about here. You're in this tiny little pink boat. Mm-hmm. And you collided with a 63,000-ton Chinese carrier ship. Yes. Which, when you watch it, looks like you've collided into a small country. Yeah, it felt small, that way. A small floating country. And you lose half your mast. And not only that, but you have to stand up in front of the country and the world's media. And you were taking a nap mm-hmm. at the time because you're, because something had happened from a radar perspective. And yet, I really want to pick up on what you just said mm. because I think it's vital you said you felt at the time you said you felt more confident yes because of it not less but more yeah right as the rest of the world had way less confidence in me very understandably from the outside I can see that but that was the moment really for me where I suppose up until that point I still had this niggling little doubt in my head that in a really bad situation I would go back to being the scared little girl that I used to be so I had something to prove to myself that I was going to really be able to cope that all my training was going to kick in when it really mattered it did that night I knew exactly what I had to do um my head just went straight to where it needed to be I had stuffed up there's no doubt about that things had let me down but you know I'm I'm absolutely take responsibility for what happened and you know the ship should have steered clear to me as well but I absolutely you know take full responsibility for what happened and yeah learn from it and obviously (laughs) don't hit ships don't hit ships do you call that muscle memory is that when you've done something over and over and over and over we have that in the speaking industry where Mm. we say that once you get on the stage your brain will inevitably shut down because it's it's part of your hardwired Mm. to shut down when that many people stare at you even just for a moment but what kicks in then is your training what kicks in is your muscle memory yes Yeah, that's what kicked in. In fact, one of my amazing advisors and mentors, this lovely English adventurer, he would tell me all the time that, you know, in these situations, you should have a cup of tea, a metaphorical cup of tea mostly because you can't actually make a cup of tea. And that's the first thing that I thought, you know, think this through, stop, think, have a cup of tea. (laughs) Didn't actually have the cup of tea. But, you know, it was those things that all just kicked in. And I knew at that point that I really could do it and, and walked away. And it was so weird. Um, you know, I did actually have a wonderful sports psychologist who was supporting me through a lot of this. And I, I just I had to talk to her and say, why do I suddenly feel more confident when nobody else does? <laughs> but that goes back to that unique relationship with fear, mm-hmm. developing a unique relationship with fear. Most people would have been more afraid after something like that. And you flipped it. And use it as a reason to feel less afraid. Yeah. Now I know my training works. Now I know exactly where the faults are in my systems. Now I know that I won't panic. And for all those reasons, I feel more prepared than I would have done had it not happened. Yeah. 
you know, I, I look back on it and I really don't believe in fate, but, you know, there there's a huge thick report into that incident and then there is still this little part that they can't quite get to the bottom of why it happened, why I didn't see it before I went to sleep. And, uh, yeah, meant to happen. <laughs> So you get you get over that. You're on the ocean for 200 and is it 30 or 210? 210 days. Firstly, just a random question that interests me. Did you take any books? Yes. Yeah. Lots and lots of books. In fact, one of the amazing companies that did say yes to supporting me was the publisher. And they said, you know, write a book about this and we'll help fund it. So the forward for the book went to help pay for the voyage, which was a pretty remarkable way of doing things. So what books did you take? Uh, Give me a, a real mix. A lot three of, of your favorites. You know, there was there was Harry Potter and things like that. Um, there are other adventure stories, but I definitely was going back to the chick flicks and the the books of that kind because it was just you know it was so different to what I was doing, and I needed to escape that. You know, that's what I was using books for. Now you had said um, so. Other than reading, you also quickly found out that you weren't a fisherman. Mm-hmm. So I think you said that in the whole. 210 days you caught one fish yes despite trying most days yep so that's you know that's a career path that's, yeah that's ruling that, that's that one out <laughs> not on the table and you've said a number of times that you you felt alone but not lonely yeah and I think that that's another really interesting part of influencing your own mind because we most of us know that the difference between being alone and being lonely is purely mental it's purely mm. how you think about it how you use that time what you choose to occupy your brain with was there anything that from a routine perspective was there because with any project mm. you get to you know there's the prep for the project there's the adrenaline there's all the talking about it and then you get into it and the monotony mm. of whatever it is you're trying to achieve kicks in and suddenly it's the same thing day after day after day after day what did you learn about keeping yourself on track other than Harry Potter. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, cheesy music and books and things like that, which all helped. And, you know, I did actually use those things. I knew when I was having a bad day that actually feeling really, you know, just in a bad mood, a lot of the time it was only – I was only feeling that way because I wasn't being proactive. I wasn't getting up and putting music on. I wasn't being active. You know, that always makes you feel a little bit better. So I did have to be quite disciplined about that, you know, not to let myself fall into a slump, you know, good thing to have a bit of a whinge and a cry and let it out, but then quickly go, all right, I need to do some of those things I know always make me feel better uh, and making yourself do those things, even though that's not necessarily what you want to do, but um, it does help. Uh, So I suppose I did become better at things like that. It also helped me a lot to know what should be hard. You know, I always thought that the first few weeks are going to be really tough as I adjusted. Um, So I kind of psyched myself up for that and was just ready to endure feeling miserable for a couple of weeks, which sounds really quite miserable. But I just knew that it was going to get better after a couple of weeks. And I was just looking out for that. And it turns out I actually got out there and the first few weeks weren't actually that miserable at all. But I I think, uh, yeah, that really helped me for some reason that um, just to know, you know, to, have, to be focused on, on the, the positives and the goals and stepping stones and to know that the tough times will pass. You're not always going to feel miserable. And then I suppose there was just, um, you know, the positive thinking strategies that my wonderful sports psychologist taught me, really simple stuff, um, you know, like learning what? about snowballing thoughts, um, you know, actually I'm just thinking all these really negative things because it's a cold, miserable day out there today. You know, realizing that, recognizing that, that actually I'm in a bad mood. I'm angry because I'm really tired (laughs) and not letting those negative thoughts snowball. You know, just one bad thought leads to another, stopping that pattern. So I was learning to to stop those negative patterns and, you know, it takes it again as sort of almost a discipline. And I'm certainly not saying that I was perfect at it all the time or and uh, these days, but, um, but, but I am actually really proud of the mental side of the trip that I had more fun than I expected. There were less of these miserable times. I have to say, I I did not watch every one of your video, mm. your video diary. You kept a, a video <laughs> yes. diary for most of it. But I was kind of, ex- I guess I was expecting to watch them and see you struggle. I, I think I was expecting to watch a few and you would be having, you know, the summer be shining, you'd be having a lovely time. But I also expected to find quite a few where you were really struggling. And honestly, I I don't think I found 
really any. I'm sure that there are some there. Might be keeping them buried a little. (laughs) I'm sure there are some there, but I was surprised. There were ones where you looked Mm. cold and miserable. Mm. But that actually led led me to a question, which is with those video diaries, so knowing that your family were watching them, mm. knowing that sponsors were watching them, knowing that the world was watching them, and, and some of those I saw had, you know, over a quarter of a million mm. views. Did you censor yourself? Did you feel a responsibility to censor yourself? Or did you feel a sense of responsibility to actually just tell it as it was at the time? I did feel the need to kind of censor myself a little, um, probably not so much from the wider world but more for my family and those really close. I didn't want them to – I didn't want to ever – the times that it actually really got to me was the times when I would pick up the phone and hear their emotion. So I was always – and, look, I think it was actually a really good thing. It helped me to to want to be strong for them. In fact, there there were a few occasions in the storms when I was yelling to my boat to be strong and you can get through this wave. I know it's totally crazy but I had been at sea for months by myself so whatever – But again, I was doing that. I was putting on the strong voice and pretending that I wasn't terrified and that helped a lot. And did you find that you, you knew you had to do a video, a video diary? Was Mm. there, were you like, okay, take a breath. As you said, make a cup of tea. Yes. Get my head in order and then do it as opposed to doing it in the moment where you were probably like, just come get me. Yeah. Just come get me. <laughs> well, uh, it, was, it was writing the blogs and even knowing that I had this book to write that actually also made me frame things in the perspective of how am I going to tell people about what happened today? And, you know, the likes of, you know, Victor Franklini in the camps talks about that being so powerful, the fact that he got through that by by talking about how he was going to tell people what he learned from it so I was sort of doing that not really consciously at the time but because I was having to write this book about it I was already kind of thinking well how am I you know what am I going to tell people about how I survived this or got through this so it was definitely framing it in that way it's amazing to me that at that age that you had such a concept of framing because you've done that in a number of different ways there you as we said before you found out what the pain points were going to be the points of failure You knew you were going to feel pretty rough during the first couple of weeks. You went out there, you found out those points of failure, and then you used that to frame, okay, I know that I knew this was going to be hard. It's hard. I I saw it coming. Mm. And you've also got, as you said, okay, I'm not feeling great now. I'm going to frame it in the way of how would I explain this to somebody else (laughs) as a learning tool. You have this incredible ability to reframe in the moment, which is not a common thing. Is it something you learned? Yeah, it's not something I really am not actually talented at anything. So this is all stuff that was learnt. And yeah, I had great people who who taught me and helped me with this. You know, loads of other adventurers and sailors who are mentors and and yeah, did slowly get better at things like that. And and please don't think I ever got them right all of the time either. <laughs> they were grim days. I I don't know anybody mm. that's got that got everything right every day on on any journey. Mm. Especially not myself. So I'm not I'm not going an awful lot into your time on the boat for this mm. specifically because I wanted to talk to you more in the context of influence mm. and how you built a team and how you influenced yourself. But there is one particular night that I wanted to talk about. And just because I think that it gives an idea of the magnitude of what you had taken on. And it was the night where you hit a storm that you said was about a category four cyclone. Now, as someone who's not a sailor, that just sounds bad to me. Yeah. I don't really have any yep. context. Can you give us some context of what a Category 4 cyclone looks like? So, I mean, 10 metre plus waves. Um, I I'm always tend to – I like to under-exaggerate with, you know, the size of waves and things so then when the conditions really are bad, I could say it's bad and people would believe me. And this particular night was a night where I think, you know, my, my sort of key – team support manager shore manager he asked me you know how is it and I said not good that was that was bad <laughs> that was really bad That's probably the point where he was like okay <laughs> this is bad this is this is really yeah. really not good yeah exactly so you are talking you know just towering waves and just it's the force of the ocean the I, what I didn't realize was how fast the ocean these waves are rushing by you know walls of water just going by at such an incredible pace so so much power and in those waves and then of course in the wind as well 
And you turned four times. Yes. During the night. Yeah, four knockdowns. So knockdown. Define a knockdown for me. Uh, so often that would just be a boat flipping to the point of the the mast hitting the water. So you sort of ninety degrees or just a bit more. Uh, and one of these, the particularly bad ones, the third one was further than 180 and then pushed upside down into the trough of the next wave more than three meters of wave on top of us or underwater because the uh, device that's supposed to activate when the boat sinks more than three meters activated itself in those conditions so so you're literally three meters underwater with your boat at that point upside down Mm -hmm. and standing you know with one foot on the ceiling (laughs) and so how other than that just sounding terrifying how do you, again, going back to that reframe, how do you stop your mind escalating in oh, those moments, the panic? That moment particularly, it was actually just, yeah, it wasn't my thoughts weren't rushing. It was more, it was shock. <laughs> it was definitely shock. Uh, it was the hours after that. It, and that's taken me a long time to feel comfortable talking about the hours after. It's only something I've recently sort of felt more comfortable doing because it's it's just downright a little bit morbid to put out there the fact that there were points that I didn't know if I would survive because I just couldn't comprehend how the boat would survive the force of those waves. In hindsight, the next day when I was able to see how strong the little boat was, considering, like she was fine, utterly fine. But at the time, I just couldn't comprehend that it would be fine. You know, I was hearing noises and bad things. But in all of that, yeah, you still had to move like you you're not sitting at the bottom of you know sitting at the bottom of the boat kind of are thinking oh you are yeah <laughs> okay, that's interesting because I'm thinking you're I mean again I'm not a sailor I'm thinking I, yeah. you're battening down hatches I know that sounds like a crazy yeah. term but I had assumed that there was constant action there's not that's all done beforehand so this during the actual storm and in different situations and storms are different but my job was mostly to hang on and let the boat look after me which is a you know a huge bit of faith I'm putting in that boat which was rightly so in the end so I mean how you how I mentally kind of got through that was doing all of those things you you're thinking through in advance still what happens when this happens you know how I gotta be ready for anything at this point um I know a lot of good sailors who are really good at that that's what they do as soon as they step on the boat they've thought through what is the worst thing that could happen you know in any any given moment but I was suppose I was reassuring myself you know the boat we had planned for knockdowns we thought there was actually going to be more than in fact I saw so I'm trying to reassure myself of all of that and there was a moment of real clarity I reached and this is kind of the morbid part where I realized that I just had to do anything to get back and to survive and that I just knew in that moment that I was I don't know what I was going to do you know I was going to I was going to swim to the other side of the ocean seriously like I just somehow was because I just couldn't put my family through anymore and that that was the thing that just you know how selfish it would be if I didn't make it back really so literally come hell or high water literally on this occasion you were gonna find some way to make it home which again would have brought I'm guessing a sense of resourcefulness yeah which enabled you just to keep yeah keep going I did I did hit that point and and this really isn't something I've explored too much because I also hit the point where I'm like well gosh maybe this is this is it and that shocked me into realizing that I was going to keep going no matter what which is again just a beautifully terrifying frame of mind to be in mm. yes to find yourself in that position where you don't know the outcome you've prepped for it as much as you can possibly prep for it and now you've got to let the mission take care of you like you've taken care of the mission up until now now you've got to let the mission take care of you oh that's exactly it that's the definition of an adventure isn't it that you do everything you can but you don't do it because you know exactly what's going to happen as well so you get through that and I know that there were I know that there were many more many more of those but I actually want to move on to something completely different now I want to I want to talk about dealing with critics dealing with the critic and it's something that I think if you undergo any project, big or small, if you you know lift your head above the parapet for however long, there's going to be some kind of feedback. There's going to be some kind of criticism. There's going to be someone that doesn't like what you've done. It's you know it's science, it's yes. like gravity. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. You can't avoid it. But it's hard enough when you're a grown up to deal with that. I mean, and I know plenty of grown-ups who live in fear of that moment of, of standing there and having people criticize what they're doing. You had like a media storm <laughs> at your back. I mean, I was reading some of it and I think 
Childhood Australia came out and condemned it. The Yachting Association came out and condemned it. How does that, you know, when you're holding on to mm. this to this mission, to this dream, how do you process that? Do you take it in? Do you deliberately ignore it? Do you study it for something you can learn? What did you do with it? We were taking a lot of it in to study it, you know, me and the the people who were really close around me at the time. And because we were out there seeking advice, we were wanting feedback and ideas of how to make this safer. So we were taking it on board, but then a lot of it was so irrelevant and that's not something I had expected. So there is a supposed yachting expert who was very vocal in the media at the time, uh, held up to be a yachting expert, I should say, who whose piece of criticism was that I wouldn't survive because the food wouldn't fit in the boat and therefore I suppose I would starve. Whereas the same, the previous person who'd done the voyage had taken the same boat and he hadn't starved at all and, you know, he probably ate more than me. So a lot of it was silly and ill-informed these people hadn't come you know they were saying you know there was in fact somebody who wrote a list of things I needed to do that I should tick off before I should set off I had done exactly very close to those things but you know he hadn't come and found that out so it was easy to dismiss criticism like that and of course it also does fuel your determination um you know those those critics there's no doubt about that It's certainly still hard. You know, I've sort of just been through it a little bit with my new book out at the moment. It is such a nerve-wracking thing to put. It's incredibly personal, a novel out there. And and it did scare me for a little while. Oh, my goodness, I'm not going to be able to cope when I see a bad review. And there will be them because not everyone is going to like this book. How on earth am I going to deal with that? And then I sort of realised, well, actually, what's the worst they're going to say? Oh, they're going to say, you know, it's not their kind of book or they didn't like this or that and I kind of just accepted that and went well it's fine I know a few people who enjoyed it and that's all it needs to be so it was sort of the same I think with the voyage it was kind of actually thinking through what's the worst they can throw at me and and almost accepting that a little bit as well I often think that the every form of criticism boils down to one fundamental question which is who do you think you are Mm. who do you think you are to do this who do you think you are to take that on who do you think you are to write a book that's we filter most criticism through as that question, who do you think you are? Yes. And if you can answer that question for yourself in a strong and empowering way, then almost criticism just yeah. washes off because the question, who do you think you are, comes in, you answer it really clearly, and then it washes away again. Mm. And you were obviously so clear yeah. about who you thought you were in that moment. You were going to be the one that broke the world record. That's who you were. Yes. And, and same with the book, you know, as somebody said, you know, oh, it was a bit simplistic, this part of the story or something along those lines. And I went, yeah, it was, you know, I'm fine with that. It was fun. <laughs> That's okay. I was not intended as anything more than that. So that opinion doesn't really hurt. Maybe it's not for you. Yeah. I liked it. <laughs> so Los Angeles Times did an interview with you prior to the, prior to the voyage and you responded, I couldn't find the question that you were mm. responding to, but I found this quote. You said, I hated being judged by my appearance and other people's expectation of what a little girl was capable of. Now, I assume you're getting a ton of those kind of questions. In fact, I saw one myself from 60 Minutes. Mm. I think it was 60 Minutes. I'm watching the interview and he sat with you and I think he said the words, you're only a petite girl. Have you got the strength? Mm. And I could feel like, I mean, I could feel my blood start boiling <laughs> on, on your behalf, but you handled it with with grace I think you said I'm not actually petite I'm I'm very average for my age yes. <laughs> which was just a beautiful comeback more so than anything else did you develop a way to deflect it in the moment yeah I suppose again just that absolute focus that I had at the time it really helped um you know these things were kind of washing over me which is remarkable and and also I had I had really close, tight support and, you know, you do, I suppose, a team like that draws in at that time and the people who are there to kind of help with that are right there with you um, helping you get through it. But it definitely, I mean, that was my motivation. That was a big part of the motivation for the trip was those, yeah, that people's expectations. I wanted to challenge people's expectations. So, you know, that yeah, I suppose we, we started to see those comments and that criticism in that light as well. So you were expecting it? 
Yeah, oh, definitely. <laughs> You're going to challenge people's expectations. Then those expectations are going to come at you. Yeah. How did it feel? Because it's one thing when the impact of criticism hits you and you can take it in and, and frame it and deal with it. And as you said, you got very good at picking out the, the valuable criticism you could learn from, from that that was just ill-informed. But when it hits your family or when it starts hitting the people mm. you love, that must have been... It must have been really challenging. You know, I saw interviews with your parents where they were asked a variety of different questions, subtext being how can you let her go? Yeah. How was that to watch? Did they yeah. shield that from you or, or were you witness to that? I think I was quite shielded from it at the time, whether they were doing that or whether the honest truth of it is I was just so focused and selfish <laughs> that that I didn't really understand or see the full impact of that on them at the time. Mum was able to handle it fairly well. Um, she kind of got it. She was on board with the wanting to challenge expectations and, you know, was being fueled by some of the rubbish that we were getting thrown along the way, you know, like parenting associations, guys, bigger issues out there, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, yeah, but the, look, there's no doubt, and, and I realise this more and more and, and always have, that doing things like this, is there's an element of just straight-out selfishness to put the people you love through that, and that's... Yeah, for good or bad, you know, I'm glad I did it. There's no doubt about that. But um, but I think you have to recognise that, that it's hard on the people around you. I think that's with any great endeavour. Yeah. There's an, there's an element of selfishness because it takes a single-minded focus that can often make other people feel almost left in the wings. Mm. And that's hard at any age, I think, to to navigate with the people that you love. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it maybe it helped being a bit of a selfish teenager. Not being a teenager would definitely that. help with that. From what yes. I remember of being a teenager, yes. Yes to that. You actually reminded me of a Theodore Roosevelt quote where he talks about, you know, it's not the critic who counts. Have you, have you heard mm -hmm. that one? It's not the critic who counts. It's if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly. Yeah. And the, the whole thing with that quote being that, you know, unless you're in the ring, mm. unless you're in the ring and daring greatly, unless you're here, putting it in day after day, unless you've done what I've done or you're at least attempting to, then I don't need your feedback. I don't want your feedback. Yeah. And if you have done what I've done, then great, give it to me. And it seems like you really went in with that attitude. Choosing the people you're going to listen to, the people to respect, choosing your mentors. I've heard that from a lot of people actually recently and it is, it's true. You know, seek out the people. You have to, it's not just their advice or their experience. You have to respect them as well, who they are, before you're going to actually really take their criticism personally. <laughs> yeah, lots of, lots of lessons there, I suppose. But. So let's talk about what came afterwards. Mm. So you, again, you made it home. Yep. You made it home. Here we are. You said goodbye to the adventure. You were greeted by thousands of people at the Opera House. Again, the footage for anybody that's interested, just go on YouTube. There's so <laughs> much of it. You get off that boat, I would imagine, and just how overwhelming that was. But I actually want to talk about the time after that because you get off that boat, it's overwhelming, there's cameras, there's people, and then the media storm dies down. And then I would imagine it goes quiet for a while and you're at home having, having finished an adventure no, 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 that's not really the way it felt. Okay, what's happening? Um, no, it was years and years of adrenaline and nonstop excitement. That's that's the way it was. Uh, you know, I'm sure you know from the outside that you know the media interest was dying down, but by this point, I was sort of doing book tours in other countries and launching myself into you know saying yes to like coming and speaking at a boat show in Brazil and all of these just incredible things that the adrenaline didn't stop for a couple of years, which is quite remarkable. I was definitely, I still feel like I'm riding that wave, which is really special. And then I was quite conscious of what's next. What am I going to do to challenge myself? At that point where everyone's sort of going, what are you going to do? You know, surely there's another adventure. I was, you know, actively realizing that if I don't keep pushing myself, I am going to, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think it's going to be good. So I was looking for new challenges. But I think after doing a few sailing projects, I also realized that a great way to challenge myself was to put myself out of my comfort zone in new ways, like going to uni and, um, you know, throwing myself into more recently a startup, uh, a new book, um, some different projects like that that have just been, yeah, taking me to completely different places. There was the there was the movie. So True Spirit was the movie, if anybody's interested. In documentary. Documentary. Yep. And that had the forward by Richard Branson, yes. I think. So how, just, he narrated it. <laughs> like, see, this sort of thing. Seriously. How can the adrenaline, you know, stop for so long when there's things like this well, happening? Well, that's an interesting question for me because I think that I, what I imagined is 
a bit like when people are training for the Olympics and the Olympics finish. And there's this sudden crash of, of adrenaline where you're, you're home now and you're back in normal routine again and how you get yourself back up and refocused. So it's surprising to me that you said that, that just that lull did not, did not happen. No. I mean, I, I was, I, I suppose later and not, more recently, I'm very active about not wanting to, to feel like that. And I don't, but, um, but also that I've had fun over the last few years as well. So, so how did, how did Richard Branson happen? Uh, he was following the trip somehow. Of course he was, because <laughs> that's what Richard Branson I'm, does. I mean, he's quite an adventurer. In fact, he's not he, a busy man. Right after I hit the ship, he was one of the very few who came out and said, leave it be, I was running a, six, a business at 16, you know, she seems like she's going to be all right. So that was remarkable. And then I don't think he was, I'm not sure he was logging on every day to see where I was, but I think he was vaguely following it and he was going to be in Australia and we asked if he'd just do the forward and it was actually sort of said that he could actually narrate it. Which, I mean, you know, among his, everything else that's incredible about him, his voice is just so beautiful. So to have that through the documentary is amazing. He's an iconic voice. Mm. And then you wrote the book. Obviously, you're, you had said, you and I were just talking before we went on air, that you're, that you're actually dyslexic. That you yes. consider yourself to be profoundly dyslexic. Yet you wrote a best-selling book. <laughs> Which again, you know, I keep mm. saying it, this unique approach to fear. Or mm. this unique approach to challenging the expectations. Yeah, yeah, and there's a bit of that, you know, um, dyslexic girl writes book. You know, that's I like that. It's a simple statement. Um, obviously, there's, there's absolutely no doubt that I had wonderful people around me to help that uh, become what it was. And and again, I suppose it was just the audacity to go, well, why not? And that's very much what this novel's been about through the second book, just going, well, why shouldn't I be the one to write this story? And so tell me a little bit about the second book. I've tried to get a copy. Yeah. She has one copy in her handbag and she's refusing to hand it over. I promised it. So tell so just a little bit about what what is this book? Because when you and I met probably about a year or so ago mm. now, you said I'm writing a, a book of fiction. And yeah. I think I, I nodded and sounded interesting. But here we are and it's just launched and you were on TV talking about it this morning. So tell me a little bit about it. So obviously it's based around sailing, shock horror there, uh, but it is a little bit uh, surprising for people who know me because there's a little bit of fantasy. Uh, it's for kids, so I should say nine upwards, young adults, age range. Uh, and there, yeah, there is, you know, new friendships, adventure, a little bit of historical mystery and a little bit of romance and fantasy. So a few things that are a little different there, but it, I think it's basically a modern fairy tale but certainly not one of those fairy tales where the heroine is waiting to be saved. I probably slight spoiler in some regards there to the to the how the book pans out. But um, yeah, it, it's I wanted it to be a given that of course she's this tough, independent, um, capable girl. I'm just thinking how incredible it is that at the stage of life that you're at, you've you've done what you've done. You've, you've done what most people think that they might achieve within a lifetime, which is <laughs> eventually I'm going to write a book and eventually I will go on that massive, you know, sailing adventure and eventually I will do this. And, and you've done, like you've done all of these things. So I guess the natural question is... <laughs> Uh, what's next? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you see, you knew it was coming. Yes, yeah. I mean, a lot of people find it weird when I say I really want a career, you know, something that really is going to intellectually challenge me. You know, I just finished the Masters, the MBA, and I realised that I want to keep studying and that's probably not a good idea to, to, you know, to keep doing that. I want to I want to go and find a, a job that is really going to push me and, and teach me some great skills and, and I want to do that, I suppose. People are sort of saying, why would you want to do that? But I really, I really do. So I'll sort of see how that pans out and where that leads. I'm not quite sure. I certainly have ideas, but I'm ready to sort of set off in that and see where it takes me. What practical advice would you give anybody who's about to undertake something that's just that, you know, we talked about that moment before you said it out loud for the first time. In that moment when they're deciding whether they say it out loud or not, what practical advice would you give them? How to get their idea out there and back it? Yeah, I mean, firstly, it's not so quite so practical, but just having the audacity to believe that you can. You know, it's an arrogance to say, why shouldn't I be one of these people? Um, why not me? Um, but more practically, I mean, it is just the open-mindedness, be ready to learn and um, recover from those setbacks, I suppose. Small goals from a practical perspective, um, you know, when you are doing something that is big and scary, it's overwhelming on the bad days. So you need small milestones, small goals along the way to cling to and work towards um, when the going gets tough. Final question, and you may just have answered it, and if Mm -hmm. you have, that's totally fine. The 
question I would usually finish with is if I could give you a stage and a microphone and in front of you, I could put everybody <laughs> you would ever want to influence. What's the one thing that you'd want them to know? Yeah, I suppose it is that. Have the audacity to believe that you can. You know, it, it is such a cliche. It's so overused that, you know, you say anyone can do anything, but I feel like that's what my story's been to some extent and it's different for everyone. But, um, yeah, I hope I hope that's what it is. <laughs> Well, thank you. I don't know if I'm going to go home now and take Rebel Girls off her bookshelf or keep it firmly there. I'm going to make up my mind later. But thank you for coming in. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you and to hear what you're going to do next. Maybe you'll come back and tell us. Perhaps. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.